Welcome. You're listening to the podcast where we interview founders innovating at the near frontier, whose companies will give you a glimpse of the future. Near Frontier is brought to you by Cantos, a venture firm that invests in world-positive deep tech startups at Pre-Seed and Seed. To learn more, visit us at cantos.vc. Concrete is the foundation of modern life, literally. You're probably sitting, standing, or walking on it right now. Globally, we use about 30 billion tons of it each year, and that's growing with the equivalent of 12 New York cities being built every year. The only thing we use more of on the planet is water. Concrete is amazing stuff, really. But there's a problem. Concrete production results in about 2 billion tons of CO2 emissions every year. Two and a half in 2020 by some measures, or 7% of total CO2 emissions, roughly equivalent to all cars on the planet. The vast majority of those emissions, about 80 to 90%, come from the production of cement, which is concrete's key ingredient. It's basically the glue. So we've got a problem. How do we continue to build houses, schools, offices, and hospitals, not stand in the way of global development, but do it without continuing to belch heat-trapping gases into our atmosphere? This is the question that our guest today, Gurinder Nagra, obsessed over for years before founding Ferno Materials, a seed stage startup building compact, carbon-neutral cement factories. We're going to get a little wonky, but if industrial decarbonization or the built environment is your thing, then you're going to love this episode. Hey, Grinder, how you doing? Hey, great to be here. Pretty good. How are you? Doing well. Well, let's just jump right into it. I'm curious, sort of, I don't know, what gets you out of bed in the morning, fundamentally compels you, and why did that end in you starting a cement startup? I've always kind of been a very curious person. My fundamental driver is always impact, as cliche as that may be. And cement is one of those overlooked industries that a lot of people don't really see in their day-to-day and the control and the way the cement industry operates is determined by a few players and I've always been the type of person that likes to poke the bear, so they say, and so I guess that's probably what's drawn me towards working on cement and and, and the cement industry. I hear something in that, which, you know, we'll get into the dynamics of the cement industry in a minute. But like what I just heard was that you were compelled by impact and in this case, climate impact, decarbonizing this industry. But like you also seem to be really interested and curious about like the dynamics of an industry and sort of problem solving and stuff. Am I am I generalizing or is that on, on point? Yeah, I agree. Yeah. I mean, that's what keeps me interested and intrigued. The challenge of doing something that or addressing an issue or a problem or an industry that is or may seem insurmountable. I think all of that draws me in further and I guess is the source of the motivation. When do you think you realized those motivation slash idiosyncrasies? I mean, I've always been very competitive, whether that's in sports or some point it was academics. Yeah, I think it's just been in in my nature. I I think it was in my teens. It eventually, I guess, went down the path of obsession. If I wanted to get really good at something or go down an avenue and really understand something, I would just 
it would become an obsession. Uh, yeah, I would not only compete with myself, but was also yeah pretty competitive person in a friendly way. But yeah, I think it's kind of a part of life, and one needs to adopt competition. Do you think ending up at Stanford was more about the competitive nature of that emissions process, or more about like uh, you know what you studied? Stanford was more of a stepping stone into doing something that I thought could have an impact. And the area that I that I worked on during my PhD was a carbon capture and storage, another overlooked space. And I thought an area that was necessary if we were to decarbonize. And the way that I saw the, the grad school experience was eventually a stepping stone to eventually build a company or a career that could have a impact in this whole space. That was kind of what drew me. But then obviously, you know, it's also the challenge and idea of moving overseas and starting again and just creating and carving a path of your own. <laughs> There's no yeah, straight line or path that's been being laid ahead. And it sounds like there was a particular class seminar or working group at Stanford that was really impactful and resulted in Ferno. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. Yeah. So while I was at Stanford doing my grad school, working on carbon capture and storage, kind of quickly realized that, hey, if one was to commercialize this type of a technology, it would be reliant on some kind of a government incentive or some kind of a voluntary incentive. And so I didn't really think that was enough to build a company in and of itself. And so I started looking into tangential areas and one of the areas that was necessary or that required CCS was the cement industry. And around that same time, got introed to Dave Danielson, who was also looking for someone to work in the cement space in one of the classes that he taught at Stanford called Stanford Climate Ventures. And I took that class three times over the course of... Uh, two years. <laughs> Every time I was working on cement, pretty fixed on finding some kind of a solution, but also really just understanding the space and just expanding my my knowledge of the industry. So that, that's, that was the, the pivotal class at Stanford that put me on the path. Okay. So before you tell us about some of the realizations from taking that class three times in two years, Tell us a little about the cement industry. Like, why why is it both so important and so problematic? And you know, what are some of the opportunities that you're uniquely taking advantage of at Ferno? Yes. Yeah, so, cement is the key component of the second most used material in the world, which is concrete. It's second only to water. <laughs> so, it's high volume, highly consumed, necessary aspect of modern <laughs> civilization. However, like, you know, in your day to day, it tends to be like an overlooked space. There are a few key companies which control the majority of cement supply around the world. And cement production annually accounts for about 7 to 8% of global CO2 emissions. So, it's a huge impact in terms of CO2 emissions. And you know, the industry over the last 50, 60 years has been consolidating and on top of that, building bigger and bigger plants. They've got a really good moat <laughs> that enables them to essentially keep this oligopoly in place. And this is the cement producers who are yeah. 
more of an oligopoly and then the the concrete mixers are more fragmented and local right no, buying cement exactly. mixing it, and then they're right. the ones that sell to the tcs for construction right yeah so if you were to kind of break it up for the value chain and simplify it into category you would have on your left equipment providers so these are the people that design and engineer and build a cement plant you have your cement producers which are the companies like Lafarge, et cetera, that actually run cement plants. And then you have concrete producers. So concrete producers, very fragmented. Equipment providers and cement producers are oligopolies. They have a, a unique relationship that essentially enables them to stay, stay oligopolies. And then if, if we go up the supply chain, cement's made from limestone or those mines, it's party to the cement makers or they they sort of maybe a fourth class the cement producers largely own those limestone quarries yeah you're learning about the cement industry that it is critical to modern society and thus i think you and i would agree unavoidable and if we figure out the co2 impact a positive contribution to society some people might take issue with that the degrowthers or whatever but that it produces something like 7% of global CO2 emissions, obviously a existential problem. So as you were taking this class three times, you learned about maybe a few ways to potentially address those CO2 emissions without halting construction worldwide. What are some of the ways that you could go about it? And then we'll get into Furno specifically. Yeah, so I mean, there are a few ways out there that you can address technically address their CO2. So in broad categories, there are companies that and approaches that put CO2 into concrete. So they are able to utilize CO2, they put it into concrete. This allows you to reduce certain amounts of cement that you actually need in the concrete. It also adds strength. However, in terms of the amount of CO2 this can mitigate, it's pretty insignificant when it comes to like the actual source of from cement production itself. Can you tell us why cement making specifically is so carbon intensive? Yeah, so there's two sources of emissions in the cement production. One is from the actual fuel that you need to heat material up to 1415 degrees Celsius. So the process is generally you'll have a limestone, you'll have some silica and clays, and you'll heat it up to 150 degrees Celsius, and then you'll cool it down rapidly. And so the fuel that you need to heat that material up generally is coal or coke. And so that accounts for about 50% of the emissions. And then the other 50% actually comes from the calcination or breakdown of the limestone. So in that process, you're burning off the CO2 from the calcium carbonate to create calcium oxide, which can create the other key components that you need in a clinker or cement by reacting with the silica. So that accounts for the other 50% of emissions from cement. So half is from heating, half is from the chemical reaction. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so roughly you get about one ton of CO2 per one ton of produced clinker or or cement. So that's the CO2 aspect. So some companies are creating supplementary cementous materials. So again, this is downstream of the value chain where you can reduce a certain percentage of the amount of cement that you actually need by creating or, or, yeah, creating supplementary cementous materials which also have reactive properties. However, there's generally a limit to the amount that they can actually replace. 
this is like Solygen, another Cantos portfolio company, has a product called Relox that does this, or like Carbon Cure, which has raised a lot of money, right? Is in, is in that area. Yeah, so Carbon Cure is in the first one, the uh, CO2 into concrete. So SCMs are like uh, supplementary, cementious materials. So it'll so you use slag from coal plants. You can use silica to actually add, as as a supplementary cementious material. And and those. Th- those producers would sell to the the concrete mixers yep. Yep. so that they to need to buy less cement basically right? yeah yeah and so I, I guess the key thing is there there is that that's okay uh, as long as it's close to the price of cement <laughs> that's one approach another approach is you know there are materials innovations where um you know, you can use different types of rocks to actually make the same end cement or you make a different alternative type of cement. So you have a slightly different process. And then there are process innovations which are taking a completely different approach of using you know, like electrochemical production or some kind of electrochemical approach to make some alternative type of cement. There are a bunch of approaches out there. So there's sort of like the, the additives into concrete there's cement alternatives, and then maybe there's the rest of the solutions fall in the category of largely reducing the amount of heating material required, right? Whether it's electro- electrochemical or thermal storage or what you're doing. Yes, in terms of categories, so there's, yeah, the additives are like CO2 into concrete. There is the uh, supplementary cementious materials. And then there is materials innovations where you create a different type of cement. And that may lead to some kind of a process innovation. And then there are like final category is like companies that are doing more incremental, like onto existing infrastructure to create a more pure stream of CO2. So Which maybe you could, you could think of them as like, in the equipment provider category because they want to yep. largely sell yeah. to cement operators. Yeah, 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 exactly. So you may sell like a point source capture equipment or you may sell like a different type of calciner that addresses the process emissions by purifying the, the stream such that you can capture and, and, and store it easily. So what is your technical innovation and business model innovation at Ferno? We kind of simplified the approaches into two categories. One was approaches taken by incumbents, and they were very much incremental advancements by incumbents that were bolt-on units onto capital infrastructure. The other approach or category was really innovations coming out of a lab or that were fundamentally trying to create some kind of a CO2 solution and then just essentially scaling up for the next five, 10 years and then but the technology itself was not founded in market insights. So our whole kind of initial insight or thesis came from understanding and identifying what was actually a business problem in the cement sector and then trying to identify a solution around that and then trying to see what type of CO2 technologies we could integrate into that type of a solution to solve that core business problem inevitable challenges that we observed in the cement space that the industry has to deal with are, one is there over the next 20, 30 years, there is going to be a huge shift in demand and growth for cement. It's largely going to shift to high growth developing markets like India and Africa. And supply today is largely in developed regions 
or, or cities and demand tends to stagnate. And so all of a sudden you've built over capacity. And so how do you get assets fixed, large capital intensive assets from where they are today to where they need to be in the next 20, 30 years and respond to the changing geographic shifts in demand? That's an inevitable change coming around the corner. And then at the same time, where your assets are today, how do you get emissions to zero given regulatory constraints raising in these regions? Whether that's around CO2 emissions or air quality emissions, those assets facing higher costs and higher higher constraints from, from those local regions. So those are two key challenges. And so our whole thing was insight was, why don't we develop a smaller scale, modular, standardized system or plant that can enter and exit markets quickly and efficiently, such they can adapt to these regulatory constraints, but then also the changes in demand coming around the corner. And so that's the genesis of, of the idea behind Ferno. And in terms of how does this type of a solution actually get integrated into the industry, we saw there was no real option <laughs> in terms of actually having an impact in the industry and, and having a footprint. There is no incentive for the existing structure of the industry to adopt any real type of major innovation because one, if it's a material or process innovation that they have to adopt onto their existing plants, it adds inefficiency, it adds, it's going to add cost. They're not going to do that until they're forced to do that. And then number two, if it's some kind of a like solution that we're proposing, there's no incentive for them to do that because it puts their existing capital infrastructure at risk. And so the only way that we saw in terms of like a path into the market was to be a company that ends up selling cement. And in terms of what type of a business that's required to do that, I can get into that further. But that was really the only path that we saw in terms of actually having impact. So what you alluded to earlier about the cement producers having really powerful modes, you know, what I think you meant is scale economy specifically, right? Like they've built these giant plants that have lowered their cost such that they can outcompete anyone in the market. And now all of a sudden it doesn't make sense for someone else to enter and spend all this money to build competing plants of an equivalent size. And so you kind of end up with this like regionally oligarchic system, but there's one problem in that that doesn't really serve the needs of the developing world as they grow. And, you know, because it's like, you know, all of a sudden I got, I got a mode over here. doesn't necessarily make sense for me to enter a completely new market where I don't have differentiation. So I'm sort of good with my existing geography. The threshold becomes higher in terms of actually deploying a unit and a plant out there. And so each new new plant that you build, it's bigger than the last. It's, it requires you know a network of contractors. They're all specialized in big units of the plant and getting them all together. It's just it, it ends up being really expensive and and and, and really costly. And, and so I, th- I think of these like these giant cement plants, and what do they cost? Like I don't know, three hundred million to billion dollars on, yeah. on that order um, <laughs> i think of them almost as having like these like gravity wells you know where like in their immediate vicinity they can outcompete on price but the thing about cement is that it's like it's kind of heavy right it like costs 
a fair amount of money to transport. And so the farther you get from their sort of center of economic gravity, the more the customer is paying for logistics cost. And so the, the farther out, the less competitive they are. But that's sort of like these like gravity wells around the cement plants leave regions where the demand isn't high enough to make sense to build a large plant. So they're kind of stuck with paying a lot more because they're shipping the cement out so far. And so if you can build smaller plants, then you can compete in those regions where it doesn't make sense for the existing makers to build a giant plant, right? Which, which applies in the developing world and also in, you know, more remote or, or smaller markets, at least in, in initially America for you. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, we want to go where the where where the traditional players are not. So the trend for the industry for the last fifty years has been building bigger and bigger plants. As as you said, it you know, one of one, one of the key advantages of bigger plants is that you're able to get economies of scale in your labor costs as you build bigger and bigger plants. Over the last 50 years, the challenge has been that these plants have gotten so big that you've gotten to a stage that you're not really seeing any economies to scale in the raw material. Energy is pretty much being capped out. Your electricity costs are pretty much capped out. The only cost that they're actually competing against each other on is that that labor cost that they're a, a, able to reduce. And so, I mean, that's all well and good, but I mean, now you have to weigh on the actual capital costs that you're <laughs> deploying to actually build these units. You have to be able to secure demand for this huge supply within a dense region and have long-term contracts over 12 years to be able to pay this thing off and then start making money. And, you know, generally that assumption is like some kind of like a 90 utilization rate that's required. If you don't hit that, then this huge plant and huge capital infrastructure that you've set out and, and paid for is at risk. <laughs> and so you better be sure that the demand's there to, to pay this thing off. And so it just adds more risk into the deployment of these units not so much gain <laughs> over the last 20, 30 years. But, but to be able to step into those gaps that don't make sense for the incumbents, you needed to build something that could achieve cost parity, at least for the local market, in a much smaller form factor. So what did you come up with? One of the insights that we had was, you know, the structure of these cement plants has not really changed for the the last 50 plus years. They've still been using rotary kilns and they've tended to add units around or on additional capital cost onto these rotary kilns, such, such as a preheater, pre-calciner and a cooler system in order to make up for the innovation inefficiency of the rotary kiln itself. And in order to gain efficiency, you end up just building bigger and bigger. The plants are optimized around scale. And so we knew if you wanted to build a smaller system, you had to fundamentally change the process itself. And so we've developed a new type of kiln or, or, or a cement plant that essentially compresses all of those four stages of production into one single step reactor. And instead of being, you know, 120 meters long and like, you know, 80 meters high and like taking over like acres of land <laughs> in terms of footprint. 
like our unit or one of our modules, which the first commercial demo will be between 10 to 20 days of production, will be like a two meter high, you know, meter and a half wide type of unit. And then in order to match whatever capacity you want in that region, you just copy paste those units. So it's it's a much lower foot, footprint, a smaller scale production system versus the way that they do today. And we're able to have a more energy efficient process at that scale, which hasn't really been done today. And then the same thing that makes it more efficient and reduces the capex is the thing that makes it easier to capture the CO2 as well, right? Yes, yes, ex- exactly. And so the fact that you're able to have all of your CO2 coming from one stream or one compact reactor definitely makes it much simpler to capture the CO2. And, and so the, the goal is to, I mean, some of the assumptions that you, you set out knowing you needed to achieve were, you know, you're, you're going to make the same thing. And, and I often, in this case, it's largely Portland cement. And I often think of a applying a healthcare term here, which is change outcomes without changing behavior, right? Don't try and convince them that they need something new. And I, I wish those companies well, I, I hope that they succeed. But, you know, with my fiduciary hat on, I'm, I'm not necessarily willing to bet on behavior change all the time, especially in heavy industry where cost matters so much. And so make the same thing, make it at least at cost parity and ideally have, have a price advantage such that you can mop up the market and, and then be able to meet modern regulations to achieve carbon neutrality as you make cement. And so if you, you're, you're aiming to compete pound for pound in you know, maybe even less regulated markets, but there's an added advantage I'm hearing if you know, you're going to take this 50-year-old infrastructure and federal or state governments all of a sudden are saying, look, hey, you need to like account for this carbon. You need to capture it. Well, now all of a sudden you've got this giant kiln that you have to somehow like capture CO2 from. It's like adding all this engineering cost, whereas you're building something from the ground up to meet the new regulation. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, one of the things that makes carbon capture and storage so expensive for traditional plants is the capture cost from from existing plants. So not only do you have to custom design a capture unit for every single plant because it's every single plant is custom built, but you also have to account for a lot of the heterogeneities in the fuel that they use. So Traditional plants built to be run off solid fuels, so that's coal, coke, etc. What is coke? I hear that term a lot, but I don't actually know what it is. It's like a refined version of of coal, and and like and, pure carbon and so, yeah, yeah, and and so a lot of these have impurities, such as you know, coal, for example, has mercury. It has high NOx emissions. It tends to have particulate matter. And then there's generally a lot of CO, CO that comes out of these traditional plants. So you also have to account for scrubbing a lot of those additional components out, which all just add on cost onto your capture unit. Whereas our system, that to be completely based on gas-based combustion. So that's natural gas, gas, hydrogen, et cetera whatever is the cheapest fuel in a particular region. And so gas burns a lot more cleanly. And we have been able to demonstrate that we have record low levels of NOx, CO, CO, and 
no <laughs> particulate matter or, or, or dust emissions that you have in traditional units. And it's very so easy to, to scrub it first. Yeah. And, and, and we're able to produce a, a pure stream of CO2 leveraging combustion technology. And so and which makes that, that CO2 once you've captured it. Yeah. So, I mean, that can be utilized for a lot of use cases. So, you know, one use case is utilizing the CO2 to put it back into concrete, as they do with carbon cure. A lot of these concrete producers are utilizing it. There is a lot of projects out there today which are doing carbon capture and storage. There are separate companies that take CO2. They look for the low-hanging fruit, which is the pure stream of CO2 to do that because the capture cost is not there and they can bought and inject the CO2 underground and receive credits. There is a merchant market for <laughs> CO2 out there. I think it's like $20, $30 a ton. As long as you have a pure industrial grade stream, which is what we have coming out of our units, you can you can sell into that merchant market. So, so if you, you know, earlier you said that you've got roughly one ton of CO2 for every ton of cement that's made. I don't know if your ratio is a little different, but if that's, if cement's selling for $150 a ton, then 20 to $30 a ton for just the CO2 is meaningful in a low yeah. margin industry. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, so our, our ratio in terms of emissions is, so we would have 0.65 tons of CO2 per one ton of a clinker. So that's about a 35% reduction in emissions. Got it. And then you're capturing it rather than off-gassing it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we're, we're, we're looking for off-takers to essentially that CO2 uh, and inject it underground. So, so what's, what's next for Ferno? I and mean, what, what are your goals for the year? What's Ferno going to look like a year from now? Yeah, so we've been able to build out our, our core system at a benchtop scale as like a proof of concept. We've been able to scale that up to a pilot unit that is able to produce samples large enough to send to customers. Did our first run on that in December and we're able to establish scaling relationships and we're gonna be continuing to optimize and running that unit over the coming months to produce samples that we send for customer and third-party validation around June. And so that's really going to allow us to convert some of those beachhead customers into actual customers by having a real uh, purchase and binding agreements uh, in those beachheads that we've identified. That's currently where we're at in, in, in terms of the progress of the company. And how much technical validation remains or have you sort of checked those boxes and now it's about commercialization? The, a lot of the key, I guess, scientific or technical risk has already been de-risked. There's obviously scale-up and engineering risk that's required from here, this pilot unit that we're currently operating now, to our next unit, which is going to be our commercial demo unit. And a lot of that risk is really a scale-up risk, which is more of an optimization risk rather than a, a fundamental or science-based risk. And one of the benefits from these smaller units and this whole modular approach is that you know if you're taking a traditional approach and you have some kind of materials innovation right and you're still dependent on existing cement plants which a lot of these approaches are you have to play the same game <laughs> and you're awaiting to hit economic or hit your economics until you get to thousands of ton a day type of capacity 
So there are multiple stages of development along that whole technical development chain. And that's each of those is like three to four years of R&D development and a lot of cost, increasing cost. And then eventually after 10, 12 years, you, know, you get to your moment of truth. Whereas with our unit, our next unit that we build after this pilot scale will be the same scale as our commercial demo unit. So we're able to get rid of a lot of the technical and engineering risk in a lot shorter of a time frame and switch from, I guess, R&D frontier and the development frontier to a commercial development frontier and have that inflection point much sooner than if you were taking a traditional approach. And so your feedback loops are a lot tighter and and cheaper to go through. Is there, which, which reminds me, there's also a bit of a software component to what you're building. You want to tell us a little bit about that? One of the requirements of being able to standardize your equipment such that it can operate anywhere around the world is that you need to be able to have an operating system for your plants that can automatically adapt to different raw meals or logic variability from around the world. And so in parallel, what we're developing is a a end-to-end algorithm that relates raw material composition to that final clink composition and is able to automatically identify what are the key and optimal operating parameters that are required to convert that kind of a raw material to the end clinker. And so this will be improving as we we get further along and get more data of more units in operation. So our more long-term actually ends up being the data and the operation of these units uh, around the world rather than the actual plants themselves. Because long-term, we want to produce these things in mass volume. They're going to be standardized. And, you know, if you're going out into regions like, you know, the developing world, like there is more risk for like a lot of these units being replicated. And so, you know, you need to be able to transition and, have, and be a company that is able to add more, of an, more onto that to have a moat. And that's really going to be the control system and, and the way that we operate these plants. You know, it may be that you have one center in uh, you know, California that's controlling 50, 60 plants around the world and is constantly collecting data and is optimizing those in real time versus having separate teams actually running these plants. And, and I'm going to guess that the incumbents aren't affording themselves of things like machine learning to optimize their kilns? I mean, they're trying, but they're limited in, in terms of how much they can actually integrate it into their, their plants. Because each of these plants are custom, a certain machine learning algorithm is limited to one plant. It's taking sort of the, the continuous manufacturing approach to, to making cement, cement plants. It's like a meta, meta cement plant. What are some lessons that, I don't know if there's entrepreneurs listening who are still in the technical de-risking phase, like what are some things you've learned about sequencing or managing in parallel, maybe technical de-risking and market de-risking? I think the key, like it's key to both having both push forward at the same pace and not get too carried away in one versus another. You always want to have contact with the customer to understand what's actually important and then be able to have that feedback or communication with the commercial customer side and then the technical development side. But then in terms of the actual technical development side of things and de-risking, I think it really comes down to the team that you hire. I think at this stage and with these hard tech 
type of companies, you early on you need people that have done it before or have like are experts in a particular area that you need and they're they're not learning <laughs> on the go or they can you know it's there's less of a time between familiarizing themselves with the space or the technology and pushing it further beyond what we have known to date you want to be able to venture out into that unknown space as quickly as possible that's where you're creating value and so the best way to do that is having people who are experts in a particular domains of the technical aspects of whatever it is that you're building in case there are any speaking of of talent in case there are any candidates listening are you hiring for any roles in particular right now we, we have two roles open at the moment. One is a combustion scientist. So this is a PhD type of candidate who will be helping us run our unit. They will be doing a lot of the experimental design and really helping us optimize the process and working with the technical team on that. It's more of a scientific R&D type of role. And the other is a R&D, a mechanical engineer who will be helping this combustion scientist and our technical team both doing materials testing and and our materials testing campaign, but also helping with the design of our unit and iterating on the design, talking to vendors and fabricators and helping with the the scale up also. And both of those are in Mountain View? Yeah, both of those are in Mountain View, California. Awesome. Well, if you're listening and feel like you might be a candidate for either of those, you can reach out to our talent partner at Cantos, Natalie Estrella at natalie at cantos.vc, or where can people find you, Grinder, and follow the Ferno journey? You can find me on LinkedIn, or you can, if you're interested in the position or learning more about cement or just want to say hi, you can contact me at my email. It's gorinder at fernomaterials.com. Awesome. And before I let you go, paint for us what in your wildest dreams might Ferno and the cement industry look like when you've achieved your goals? In my wildest dreams, the cement industry is... Uh, decentralized. We, we, we have modular units all around the world. There's less fluctuations in, 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 in prices of cement geographically because we enable a more distributed production of, of cement. And, you know, we've kind of rebuilt uh, the way that we make cement. And there's a lot more, there's a lot more players and a lot more innovation in the industry that is ultimately happening uh, on, on top of our platform, which is these modular, smaller scale cement plants, whether that's material innovation or, or some other aspects of CO2 utilization. My wildest dreams would be that, yeah, we kind of have distributed cement plants all around the world and there's a bunch of material innovation and iteration happening locally. There's more competition and then, and then players in the market trying to fragment, I guess, this cement sector. I love it. I'm very grateful that you allowed Cantos to be part of the journey. And you know, for better or worse, we're, we're stuck with you and you're stuck with us. So I'm, I'm yeah. very happy that's the case and excited to you know revisit this as Ferno progresses. We'll have you back on and give, give listeners an update. It's been really fun to have you on, Grinder. Thanks so much for joining us. Awesome. Thanks so much, Ian. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Near Frontier. Links to external content mentioned are available in the show notes and at nearfrontier.com, where you can also find other episodes of the show. 
To leave feedback or suggest future guests, you can find us on Twitter at Cantos. <laughs>